Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is with me as my co-host as always. We have uh, three major topics for you today. The first one is we're going to cover some of the new iMacs and associated peripherals that Apple announced a couple of weeks ago. We didn't have a chance to cover those at the time and so we're kind of circling back and covering those now partly because Aaron's been using some of the new peripherals and so he's got some interesting views on those. Um, the second topic will be our question of the week and this week that is going to be uh, relating to Apple's earnings next week. So the question is, what should we expect from Apple's earnings next week? Um, they're being announced on Tuesday, I believe, so before we next record. Um, and so as with last quarter, we'll do a, a little preview of those. And then our third topic, which will probably be fairly brief, is um, following up on two weeks ago when we talked about Microsoft's event where they announced the new Surface products. We're going to just quickly talk about some of the reviews for the Surface Book in particular, which came out today, Wednesday, when we're recording this. Um, and then we'll wrap up, as always, with our weekly pick, and Aaron's down to do that for us today. So we'll start out with the new iMacs and the new peripherals. So I think I think we'll probably start with peripherals, which, as I said, Aaron has been using for just a short while um, himself. So Aaron, what, what's kind of been your first impressions on the new peripherals? Yeah, so I, I, I didn't get the new mouse um, because I, I've been using the Magic Trackpad, the first version, for a, a while now. And so I got the, the Magic Trackpad 2. And then, although I prefer the full-size keyboard with the 10-key keypad, uh, I've been intending to get a keyboard for my iPad. Mm, and yeah. I figured this, you know, a lot of people really like not having to change the keyboard that they use when they switch to typing on, using it with the keyboard on their iPad. Right. <clears throat> and so I thought this was a good chance to get the Magic Keyboard that just came out, mm. um, which paired really easily with my iPad. So how does that work? That has a lightning cable, is that right? It does. So it has a lightning cable, but you don't use that to pair it to the iPad, although that okay. does work with the Mac. <clears throat> and that's true for all these peripherals. So, for example, when I, when I pulled the Magic Trackpad 2 out of its box and I had read that that's how this worked, I just plugged it in. I plugged the lightning cable from my computer into the back of the trackpad. I had an instant, an instant message saying that uh, the trackpad is now paired wirelessly with my computer. And, and in fact, before I even did a click, I unplugged the lightning cable, and sure enough, it worked great. And, and mm. this is especially interesting, because I'm, I'm still using a pretty old MacBook Pro that has Bluetooth 2.1, mm -hmm. and Apple has officially said that the Magic tra Trackpad 2 requires Bluetooth 4.0. Oh, okay. Uh, and I read it was actually Dan Morin in, a, in the review he did of the Magic Trackpad 2 where he pointed out that it works with older Macs even though Apple says it doesn't. Hmm. I, I'm not sure why Apple drew that line. I, my suspicion is that it has to do with power savings. Yeah, I was going to say that's generally one of the big benefits of Bluetooth 4. Yeah, and uh, so it may be the case that, mine, that the Magic Trackpad 2 runs down faster than mm -hmm. it would if I had a newer Mac connected to it. But right. I, yeah, I don't know. I am not too worried about that because I can always just plug it into the lightning cable. And it, you, the nice thing mm -hmm. is you can plug it in to charge it and still use it while it's charging. Unlike the mouse. Right. Which, which I think awkward. a lot of people were sort of surprised <laughs> about the design on the mouse where you yeah. plug the lightning cable into the bottom of it, which means it's literally unusable when it's plugged into power. It is strange. I, I mean, the nice thing is that it takes like two minutes of charging to get hours worth of use. Hmm. Um, but it does sort of, I mean, it kind of falls back on the having to replace the batteries kind of a thing, right? That right. can be a bit of an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I, um, I, I can see why Apple did it. And I think it all comes down to the fact that there was no nice looking place to put the lightning port other right. than on the bottom. So they'd rather hide it on the bottom than right. With the with the trackpad and the keyboard, the lightning port is essentially hidden from the user, because the backside that faces away, mm -hmm. and with how the both the trackpad and the keyboard are angled, I, you can't see it unless you pick it up or look behind it. And right. And I, you know, Apple cares about stuff like that. So every once in a while, they make they make weird to, like usability decisions for the sake mm -hmm. of design, and I think that was one of those moments. Right. Okay. Um, and so, so you're going to be using your keyboard with both your iPad and your Mac. It sounds like. Yeah, I'll be trying it out. I, I, I did notice a difference in the key stability. 
Um, hmm. And it is, and the key press like depth is a little bit shallower, but not so okay. much that it would take very much time at all to get used to it. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I mean, key stability is interesting. I know Apple made a really big deal out of that with the MacBook keyboard. Um, you know, and they showed like during the when they were introducing that MacBook, they made a big deal out of the new butterfly mechanism that they designed and all that. But, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I, I think I noticed a little bit of difference, but it's not the sort of thing I would just notice if I were, you know, using it on a on a regular basis. I think I'd it'd be quick to forget this key stability difference. Right. So, um, I did. Do you like, find you, sorry? Go I was ahead. Say, do you find yourself using the force touch stuff on the trackpad? I'm kind of trying to make myself use it more. (laughs) (laughs) I think it has mostly to do with the fact that Apple has yet to bake in really compelling force touch features into OS X. Mm -hmm. I I mean, the the word lookup thing is cool. It's not very often, though, that I find a need to look up a word. Right. Um, I do like the link preview. That's pretty Mm -hmm. neat. Because it's a chance to just quickly pull up a preview. It's so it's like a quick look, essentially, of a web page. Right. So if you're in a web page and you see a link, you don't want to actually load that link. You just want a glimpse of what it contains. Mm-hmm. Um, that part's really nice. Which is the same as on iOS, right? right. Using yeah. a, a, a new iPhone. Yeah, it, and, and I like that feature a lot on the iPhone, and I've used mm-hmm. it a lot since I got my success. Yeah, yeah. And so having it on the... Mac has been, that's probably my favorite use of it. Hmm. Um, I, I think I, on the on the dock, you can use it to do an expose of Windows, uh, which is pretty cool. Hmm. So if you have multiple Safari windows open, for example, if you do a force press on the Safari dock icon, it goes into expose just for that app. So that part's pretty nice. I think. Right. I mean, yeah. but a lot of these are the sort of thing you have to train yourself to start using. They're not the sort of thing that you're automatically going to think to use. And um, I find that's true of a lot of new features Apple rolls out. It seems like every time OS 10 comes out with changes to, uh, to uh, expose, you know, or I can't even remember what they call it now. Launch Center, is that what it is? Yeah, the, well, yeah, Launch Center is where you click on the thing, you see all your apps and stuff, right? right? And then Yeah. Um, and, anyway. Or Launchpad. 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 But, but it seems like all these things where Apple makes changes, if you don't really kind of force yourself to get into a new habit, your old habits just take over and, and right. you forget about them. And I think there's going to be something like that with Force Touch if I don't make myself use it more. Mm-hmm. Um, the novelty, like the deep click is a really satisfying feeling, though, like physically, mm-hmm. like it feels cool to deep click. Um, and just like with the trackpads on the MacBook Pros, it is really trippy to switch off the Magic Trackpad 2 and have no clicking at all occurring. <laughs> to switch off the sound, you mean? Well, not to, well, you, oh. so you can't switch off the sound. And, this, and that's, a, that's an interesting feature because when I got out of the box and started using it, it made a clicking noise that... I would have expected with any trackpad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remembered reading that you can switch off the clicking sound. Mm-hmm. And you go do that, and then it almost entirely goes away. It, that clicking sound is actually being produced by what's essentially a little speaker. Right. And when you turn, when you go into the settings to turn off the clicking sound, there is still a tiny noise, but it comes from the little actuator that's giving you the, the feedback, the force touch feedback. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, I, I turned it off. Um, but uh, no, what I meant is that when you switch off the entire trackpad, hmm. you realize that this is just a solid slab without any mechanical mechanisms. Right, I get it. Press, yep. which is trippy. Like I mean, it's really mm-hmm. weird to be feeling like you're clicking, and then when you turn off the device, you realize that there's no actual physical clicking occurring. Right, right. It's, yes. it's a trippy feeling, but it's yeah. really, but it's it feels magical. It's really cool. Hmm. Are you are you um, finding that the because one of the challenges with the old Magic Trackpad was you could only kind of click in certain parts of the trackpad, right? Like the lower half of it, basically. Oh, right. are you, uh, is that something that's been useful to you that you've been able to do now? Yeah, I think so. I, I find that I actually will click with different fingers given different circumstances. Mm-hmm. I mean, I click quite a bit with my thumb and quite a bit with my index finger, mm-hmm. and so a lot of the time my index finger is actually toward the top of the of the trackpad 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the reason the old one did that is because the buttons were actually the little rubber footies at the bottom of the old trackpad. Right. And so if you're trying to click at the top, you're essentially trying to press on the wrong Pushing end. Pushing the weight in the wrong place, yeah. Right, whereas this obviously doesn't work that way. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like I have to push as hard to get the click to happen. Right. Um, the force touch on this also has a bunch of different levels that I haven't had a chance to play around with yet. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, it does like 60 levels of difference. I can't remember what I read about that, but hmm. it, you can actually manifest it. So one of the features is a word lookup, like you can look up a, a, a word in the dictionary by doing right. the force press. Well, if you just slowly ramp up, very slowly ramp up the pressure of your click, you can actually kind of see the window come in with the depth of it. So it's kind of like a slow-mo version of hmm. the dictionary lookup. Right. But uh, but all depending on how hard you're clicking. Hmm. So it's a way to kind of show how sensitive it actually is with the with the force press right. thing. So cool. Yeah. So I yeah I'm pleased with it. I uh, you know I wish it wasn't 130 bucks. But, yeah. Uh, I mean I, I use I use a magic trackpad or at least I have a magic trackpad. I find that I mostly use a magic mouse and uh, I have a magic trackpad and to use with my Mac Pro, which is my main computer at home and my home office. And uh, I find that I very rarely use the trackpad somehow. I don't know. I guess I've always used mice rather than trackpads, especially on desktop computers. And so yeah. that's what I'm drawn to. But yeah, some of the limitations in terms of where you can click and so on on the trackpad and the fact that, you know, you've got this limited space within to work, you know, has, has always kind of made that meant that I've used it less. And so when the new ones were announced, I thought, oh, I want to get that. And I thought, oh, $130, is it really worth it to me? And yeah. I don't know, having heard you talk about it, I'm still in two minds about it. So yeah. The, the, w- the extra space is really nice because mm. it's about, I mean, I'm comparing the, the old one to the new one. It looks like it's about 20% wider. Mm-hmm. I mean, it matches the dimensions of a typical laptop display or Apple's Thunderbolt display. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the width is is noticeably useful, especially if you're dragging stuff, you know, from one end of the screen to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a colleague who has an extra wide display um, that LG makes, mm-hmm. hooked up to his Mac, and and he he gets really annoyed when he has to click and drag across this gigantic <laughs> display because right. he uses the trackpad, he uses the old trackpad too, and he's mm-hmm. getting the new one because of the extra width he really right. is looking forward to that so yeah and hmm. th- I think one other thing I like about the keyboard is the shallower angle of it mm-hmm. that is a noticeable difference is that the angle is shallower and I think that's easier on your wrists yeah because you're not you know tilting your hands back quite as far right yeah um, huh. that said I, I really really wish Apple would come out with a full-size version it yes. sounds like they don't really care about full-size keyboards and haven't for years, but yeah. I love having a, the 10-key pad. I just right, yeah, I handy. use a full-size keyboard with my Mac Pro, and I find it extremely useful, especially when I'm doing data entry. I mean, I do a lot of work with spreadsheets and stuff, especially around earnings season, and, yeah, having that that uh, keypad is so handy. So, yeah, I'm not sure I could live with the smaller Magic keyboard. Yeah, I think I think in, I think in the long run I'm going to be using my full-size keyboard with my Mac and then the... Mm-hmm. Um, the magic keyboard the magic keyboard with my iPad especially when I'm traveling because I like not having to bring a computer if I don't Mm, need to sure yeah yeah no it's nice I I have a I have like a Logitech one that I use for that kind of situation so it acts as a case for the iPad too which is quite nice Um, you know all of this obviously was introduced though in the context of the new iMacs and we've been talking about your experience with the peripherals but um, you know, these new iMacs were announced as well. And obviously last year we saw the 5K iMac for the first time. Now we have 4K sort of little brother to go with it. Um, but one of the things that people have been talking about is the fact that the storage on these new iMacs, especially at the low end, is a bit subpar for this day and age. And especially, you know, given all the other technological advances that Apple's been making. So there's a 5400 RPM hard drive in the base model of the new <laughs> iMac. Um, you know, that's technology that's been around for a very long time now. Um, you know, and Apple's been putting SSDs in, you know, all the MacBook line for quite some time. Um, they do have Fusion Drive options, which have very small sort of SSD partition and then a much larger um, sort of old-fashioned style hard drive alongside it for, for the bulk of the storage. Even that, I think you were saying before we started recording, Aaron, that, that they seem to have even there shrunk down the portion that's SSD. Is that right? Yeah, they have. So the the entry-level... Um, Fusion Drive used to have 128 gigs of storage, 
So that's plenty for the, what the Fusion Drive accomplishes. Because the way that works is it it stores the commonly accessed files on the on the SSD portion, mm-hmm. and then the less common files are on the magnetic platters, and um, which is really a cool, elegant solution, kind of a stopgap, you know, until the time comes that we're just doing SSD for everything. Right. But it's surprising for Apple to to go backwards in this mm-hmm. respect because the yeah. new Fusion drives, the entry level ones, have just twenty four gigs mm-hmm. of of uh, of SSD storage. I mean, which really you're talking about like a couple apps, and your boot up is going to be faster because system files are stored on it, mm-hmm. and that's about it. Right, yeah, it does feel funny. And so a lot of the time you're not really benefiting from having a Fusion Drive at all, which is strange. Mm -hmm. And and it's weird for Apple to cheap out on that. Um, In fact, it kind of, it's reinforcing this feeling that Apple is super stingy on the low end of all of its price tiers. Yeah. Because it's not just the iMac, the iPhone 2 with the 16 gigs of default storage. Right. Yeah, no, and I wonder if if it's partly an outgrowth of the fact that they try to make all these technological advancements and yet are trying to keep prices either stable or coming down in some cases. And so, you know, you put a new display in something like this, that costs a lot of money. You've got to make a trade-off somewhere else. And uh, if you want to keep the price stable, if, you, if you're happy to raise the price by, you know, the amount it takes to add in the new features, then I guess you can you can do that. But I think they've been trying to keep the price on some of these items down. But, um, you know, whether it's putting 3D touch in new iPhones or whether it's putting a 4K display in these new iMacs, it feels like the trade-off has been that they've cut corners elsewhere. And with the iPhone, obviously, they've, they've stuck at 16 gigabytes for a very long time now. But, um, you know, with the iMacs, perhaps they kind of cut back on some of the solid state drive in order to keep prices down as well so but yeah i mean the end result is you know and these are not cheap computers either i think it's 14.99 or something for the starting price for the imac so well, it does feel odd new, yeah for the 4k one it starts at 1500 of oh, 15 yeah yeah so and that is i mean that's not a cheap entry point for an entry-level computer Right, um, and and so, but it, but it does seem sort of at that price. I, I guess I don't know enough about Apple's margins and and what sort of marginal difference it makes to have 128 gigs versus 24 gigs on the Fusion mm-hmm. Drive. But I mean, come on, like 24 gigs, like you couldn't at least just double that because right. because the difference that would make in user experience feels to me, and I guess I don't know this for sure, but it feels to me like it would make a measurable difference. Yeah. And yeah. and 24 gigs sort of feels like Apple is essentially saying, hey, let's load some system files on it and, and call mm-hmm. it good, so it boots right. up faster. But yeah. that means the actual like using of it goes the other direction, right? Instead mm-hmm. of being a great experience, it's a less great experience, and that's a weird thing for Apple to do. Right. Right. Yeah. It, no. Absolutely. It does feel a bit odd. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. The truth is, I'm a little bit annoyed by the 4K iMac for a number of reasons. Um, I'm annoyed that the RAM is soldered on, so there's no upgrading the RAM. You have to the right. RAM you get is the RAM you have for the entire life of that computer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also just really hard to get into. So if you wanted to upgrade the hard drive, which is something mm-hmm. I've done in the past with iMacs that I've owned, right. it's, it's a way to make the computer a lot better and faster. Is just upgrading the hard drive, and and uh, and that's not an available option. And I don't know, like the timing t- is weird on this because of the Skylake processors. Because the 4K iMac still has the older Broadwell. I say older; they're you know seven or eight months old. Mm. But they have the older Broadwell processors in them, which are, um, which are, are not the future. In fact, I think Apple's going to be doing a huge revamp across its whole line when Skylake shows up. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think they would have put Skylake in if they could have. But it, it definitely mm. makes this 4K iMac feel like a very temporary computer. Yeah, as yeah, far it feels as like it's going to get replaced pretty strategy. quickly. Yeah. yeah, and so I wouldn't. Yeah. It, I mean, I wouldn't buy one if I was in the right. market for one right, right now. Feels like you'll get something at least as good, well, significantly better for around the same price next right. year, probably. And that's happened with the iMac line in the past. They've mm-hmm. done sort of stopgap um, updates just because it's been a while since they've updated and. Technology mm-hmm. wasn't quite where they wanted it, but they had to at least get something out to right. refresh sales, especially for the holiday season. And mm-hmm. that definitely is what this one feels like. And so I, I would not buy it, especially right. because 
when the Skylake comes at the processor, you know, if it finally hits, you know, with all the different lines that should be like all the different processor lines that are going to come out next early next year, I think you're going to see USB-C going to all the Amacs and, and laptops. Um, I think uh, that's when Apple's finally going to have an external Thunderbolt display that does 5K. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you're going to see huge changes because Skylake enables all these things that are not quite enabled now. And, right. uh, and so it's not a great time to buy a brand new. Normally, if Apple's refreshed a, a product line, I tell people, yep, now it's the time to buy, right? Because right. Mm-hmm. you're sort of making the most out of the cycle. But yeah. I, I don't feel that way at all about the IMAX right now. Mm. Yeah, no, interesting. Okay, well, we'll leave that topic there. But uh, thanks for sharing your experiences in particular about the, the new peripherals. Um, we'll move on to our second topic, which is our question of the week. And uh, the question this time around is what should we expect from Apple's earnings next week? And obviously, we're in the middle of earnings season right now. Um, we've had a couple of companies report already, and, and things really kick off in earnest this week and next. Uh, Apple reports, I believe, on Tuesday, um, so just before we record next week. So we may well cover some of the actual earnings next week. But uh, but the question of the week this week is about what we should be expecting, given there's a lot of speculation about all of that. And the truth is, when this is the question, the first question is always about the iPhone, right? right. And it has mm-hmm. been for a while. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah, and what are you expecting as far as the iPhone goes? What do you think Apple's going to be reporting? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, as you say, always the most important driver of their results. And, you know, Apple doesn't ever say how many it's expecting to sell uh, ahead of time. The only kind of guidance they do give is financial guidance around sort of three or four data points. They talk about revenue, talk about gross margins, they talk about operating expenses, and then they provide some other sort of tax-related stuff. Um, but you know their high-level revenue guidance is 16 to 21 percent growth year on year, and that is a lot by um, kind of historical levels. You know, if you look for the sort of period from 2012 to early 2014, they're a single-digit year-on-year growth. So that's significantly higher. But of course, for the last three quarters, growth's been in the sort of 20, 20s and 30s every time. And so this is actually going to be the lowest growth quarter. Um, in four quarters if they stick within the guidance, which they generally do. Um, and that, in turn, suggests you know decent but not enormous iPhone growth. And you know they sold 39 million iPhones in this quarter a year ago. Um, analysts are predicting anything from 45 to 51 million, so it's a sort of 6 million range there. Um, the guidance suggests about 8 to 10 million more than last year, so that's sort of the midpoint of that range, somewhere around 47 to 49. Um, so, you know, that seems like roughly how many they'll sell. That's pretty good growth. Um, but, you know, one of the big questions is just kind of do they keep that growth going for the next few quarters? And, and of course, Q4 of last calendar year was a huge quarter, by far the biggest quarter ever for iPhone sales. And so next quarter is going to be the really interesting one to watch. Um, but, yeah, you know, we should see pretty decent iPhone growth, somewhere around 8 to 10 million more than this time last year. Um, one of the biggest factors will be China. Um, and Tim Cook made some comments kind of partway through the quarter about performance in China because that seemed to be one of the main reasons why the stock was having a hard time was that people were starting to lose faith that China was going to be a major driver of growth. And he certainly talked that up. So I would expect China to be a major theme, especially as regards iPhone sales in the quarter. Um, but, you know, it really needs to do well in all the major markets. And it launched in a lot of markets uh, right at the end of that quarter. Um, and, of course, it only went on sale in retail stores um, at the very end of the quarter, although pre-orders were available for a couple of weeks before that. But decent growth, anyway, in iPhones. But, um, you know, starting to slow down in terms of the kind of year-on-year growth rate just because we're getting to the one-year anniversary of when the hyper growth started with the new iPhone 6s last year. Right. There's always that problem of, I mean, I mean, year on year is typically seen as a very stable measure, but with how big the iPhone 6 was, especially with the 6 Plus last year, it seems like that's not, that's not really giving you an accurate picture about right. what could happen in the long run. I'm interested in China because, I mean, Apple had the iPhone ready to go from the start, mm-hmm. which means China sales are going to feed into this quarter's numbers. Yeah. But in the U.S., you know, there's the 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 pre-order option and i'm curious mm-hmm. how much pre-orders matter in china 
right. um, versus in the U.S. Like, I don't really have a sense of how many people are pre-ordering iPhones in China mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. here in the U.S. Because here, it's, you know, Apple has, has, seems to be undertaking a very deliberate strategy to get people to pre-order more and more. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, that feels like kind of the Angela Aaron's effect. You know, yeah. the, the lines outside of stores are a sign that we're doing things wrong rather than a good sign. And so, you know, really trying to get people to pre-order. And then, you know, even in the U.S., they had this day of reservation system. So you could kind of make an appointment to pick up an iPhone uh, from the first day that they were available. Um, and I think, you know, they managed a great number of the kind of in-store sales that way this time around. Um, and I think, you know, that made for a much more orderly process, much less sort of standing in long lines and stuff like that. People obviously did still stand in line and there were some uh, phones available. Um, it was interesting. I went to a lot of carrier stores the day of the launch this time around here in the U.S. And most of them were sold out of a lot of the models by the time I got there sort of mid-afternoon. Uh, but the Apple stores seemed to have more in stock. But I think between the reservation system and the strong pre-orders, I think they sold a lot in other ways and they were they were looking to sell far fewer through walk-in sales the day of um obviously you know as we've kind of gone through um the early you know first couple of weeks of sales and now things have settled down obviously in-store sales are going to be a much bigger component of the total but um that was interesting things for them to manage and obviously you know china being available on day one meant they had to add that to the mix as well um i don't think the reservation system was available in all markets i think that was mostly a u.s thing but um, that's an interesting new kind of innovation and it makes it makes it harder I think some of the analysts tend to go by kind of lines at stores as a major sort of signifier of how demand is and yet this time around my sense is the lines were a lot shorter partly because pre-orders were a lot uh, more copious and the pre-order period was longer and so fewer people had to wait in line if they wanted to get one in the first couple of days it sort of gives you the feeling that Apple would be happy if analysts have a harder time <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> By yeah. not being able to measure lines outside of stores. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. Any other thoughts about iPhone that you want to make sure we consider before next week? Um, no, I think we've probably covered the iPhone pretty well. So let's talk about the watch then, because this is an area that I'm kind of fascinated by, if for no other reason. I mean, Apple's very coy. They're not really reporting watch mm-hmm. sales. I mean, not. And, and analyst guidance seems to be all over the map. Mm. So talk to us a little bit about watch and what, if anything, we might expect from Apple next week. Yeah, I mean, the watch is a tricky one, particularly because Apple's not actually reported numbers in the past. So um, anybody who's making estimates for sales this quarter is basically having to use their own estimate from last quarter as a starting point, which makes it particularly tricky. Um, And so, you know, and we talked about kind of uh, Apple earnings last quarter back in episode seven. So if you're interested, you can go back and listen to that. But I wrote a couple of posts the day before and the day of earnings last time around talking about Apple Watch numbers. And the challenge was Apple didn't give a number. And Apple Watch sales are buried in a broad category of other products, which has iPod and a variety of other things in as well. And so it just makes it very hard to parse out the Apple Watch number specifically. And so my guess for last quarter was somewhere between two and three million taking two and a half million is kind of the the midpoint if you have to pick a number um but the estimates and and uh fortune uh magazines uh apple guy philip elmer dewitt does an interesting roundup of analyst uh estimates every quarter for iphone sales and watch sales and so on so i had a look at his numbers today that he's collected from various analysts and they're predicting anything from two and a half to six million so it's a factor of two plus between the low end and the high end of those estimates um, you know, if you take two and a half million as what they sold last quarter, um, Tim Cook said this week at the Wall Street Journal digital conference um, that Apple Watch sales this quarter were higher than last quarter. And of course, you had a full quarter of sales this time and far fewer supply constraints. So that's what you would expect. So I'd say two and a half is probably a bit stingy, um, if that's your estimate. Um, it should be at least in the threes, if not sort of four. Um, but it's really very hard to know whether it's anywhere between four and six at this point. You know, it could be a lot higher, it could be just a bit higher. Um, you know, you've got WatchOS 2 has come out, which, you know, I thought might stimulate sales, but the apps haven't really been there to justify that. Uh, obviously, there's been broader retail availability, um, but Best Buy didn't really kick in until pretty late. Um, that was one of the big expansions. So, um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts here. But, yeah, I think probably around four million um, it's probably a, a good sort of stretch goal for how many they sold, but chances are we're not going to get a number, and so we're all going to be guessing at what the number is and trying to estimate how how much iPod sales fell and so on so that we can get at that number. Um, but, yeah, really tricky and, and a huge range of, of estimates from analysts as a result. 
when, if ever, Apple decides to start announcing watch numbers, they would they would just they would make that announcement probably in a quarterly earnings call. Yeah. At what point do you think Apple would have the either the desire or the incentive to actually report these numbers? Yeah, I think too. Well, um, at some point, you know, as demand starts to match supply rather than outpacing it, which happened in the first quarter, I think that's one of the major drivers. I think they didn't want to give numbers early on because it was more of an indicator of supply than of underlying demand. Um, but I also think, you know, once they get the retail distribution where they want to, and it's in all the countries where they want it to be, and so on, then you get a really a truer picture of what the demand really is. And I also think, you know, they're still getting the message out about what the Apple Watch is. So I think for all those reasons, they're holding back. You know, the reason Tim Cook gave this week for not reporting numbers was not to help competitors, but I don't know. They give all the other numbers for iPhones and iPads and so on. At some point, I think it's inevitable that the Apple Watch gets broken out as its own reported category and segment. And so you get a revenue number and you get um, a shipment number as well. Um, and it's just a question of when. And I think probably sometime early next year, probably they get to the point where the numbers are big enough that they have to start reporting them. Um, but yeah, you know, it might be that after the holiday quarter, when they come to report earnings at the end of January or whatever, that they might say, okay, you know, we had a huge holiday quarter and we sold this many so far or something like that um, as a sort of precursor to fully breaking out the Apple Watch as its own segment somewhere later next year. Yeah, I guess there is always the possibility that they'll, they'll do a benchmark sales announcement, like mm-hmm. if they've hit 10 million. Right. And that would happen whenever it, it, it happened. I mean, Apple would right. make the announcement whenever it was that that sales goal was at, or sales target Yeah, was that's, that's the one achieved. argument for suggesting that they might make it somewhere other than on an earnings call. They've done that with iPod touches in the past, for example. Um, so there is something of a precedent for that kind of an announcement. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts about Watch? I mean, it seems like it's still so early in the product cycle you know, mm-hmm. the life cycle of this product. I mean, who knows what the, if you look, for example, the difference between iPad 1 and 2, between, you know, the first iPhone and the iPhone 3G, those are all pretty big leaps. And it seems like a lot of people, myself included, are expecting a pretty big jump between, you know, the first version of the watch and the next one. Um, so, uh, you know, do we, how much do we really take from watch at this point? in terms of its sales and its trajectory in the future of it? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. You know, ultimately, um, the the hardware will evolve, obviously, and so that will, you know, potentially create an upgrade cycle and create interest from people who didn't buy the first one as well. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, the, the software has advanced very quickly too, and, you know, Unlike some of these other products where the form factor is going to change very dramatically, I suspect with the Apple Watch, Apple will have a a big incentive to keep things roughly the same so that things like bands can be reused and, and, you know, the charger can be reused and stuff like that. Um, They've got a lot of flack for changing things too dramatically in the past, and as such, they tend to, you know, keep the really big changes to an every few years kind of thing. So I can see them slimming it a little bit. At some point, we'll see a 3G or 4G radio in there, perhaps its own GPS and so on in the next couple of years too. So there will be things like that that I think will make it a lot more useful. And so that will that's the kind of thing that will drive higher sales over time. Um, but, you know, I think with the software advancements they've already made, you know, we've talked about what the likely upgrade cycle is. You know, is it even a year? Um, is it two years? Is it something else? You know, I mean, a yearly upgrade cycle would mean, um, you know, April we'd see a new one. Um, that seems quite short given, you know, how early it still feels like they are in the, in the, um, the life cycle of the Apple Watch. So, yeah, I'm curious to see how that rolls out. I don't have a kind of clear view yet of how that will happen. Um. We talked earlier about China relative to the iPhone. China is a really big chunk of Apple's sales nowadays. Um, what, do you, what do you think we're going to hear about China next week? And how do you think Apple's going to talk about China? I mean, the panic seems to have subsided, um, although there still is definitely a lot of low-level anxiety about China's economy. Um, you know, as far as Apple is concerned and the way they talk about it next week, especially in light of the comments you mentioned earlier about mid-quarter, you know, Tim Cook speaking out on how how China was doing. I mean, what do you think we'll hear about China next week from Apple? Yeah, I mean, I think given the mid-quarter stuff, I think we're going to hear some really positive stuff about year-on-year growth and that kind of thing in China. And 
um, you know, the importance of China overall to Apple's business. And so, yeah, I'd expect Tim Cook to talk up China quite a bit, as he has done for the last few quarters. Um, obviously, China's uh, calendar looks a bit different from the calendar, to say, in the US and Europe and some other markets, because uh, the biggest buying season tends to be the first calendar quarter rather than the fourth calendar quarter. So, you know, a lot of the biggest growth in China will probably come then. Um, but obviously this year, you know, Apple had new iPhones available in China from the get-go, whereas last year there was a regulatory delay that pushed things off for a few weeks. So, um, you know, there's differences there, and I would expect him to talk about that. I'd expect him to talk about China in the context of um, the first weekend sales and, and so on, um, which were higher than last year, but only by about $3 million, which seems about the size of what China would contribute. Um, so it's going to come up a lot, and I would expect him to be quite bullish about it. And I think he's going to be asked about it a lot as it relates to next quarter and the following quarter as well. And obviously, Apple only guides out one quarter at a time. And so watching their guidance for next quarter is going to be really important and trying to understand the role of China there. And I'm sure they'll get asked about that specifically. Um, they'll be reluctant to provide any guidance for Q1 calendar 2016, but that's going to be when China really has the biggest impact in terms of the overall market, because other markets will have slowed down a bit by then uh, after the holiday quarter. So it's going to come up a lot. And, you know, it's been not just iPhone, though. It's been Mac. It's been, you know, new Apple stores. It's been Watch and other stuff where, where uh, Tim Cook's mentioned uh, China, obviously the App Store and developers in China have been another major emphasis. Um, one other thing is that we've seen a couple now um, of recent attacks on iOS coming out of China. And so I'd expect that to come up too, where um, you had first this um, unauthorized version of Xcode that was out there, it was injecting malware into apps that were signed by it, and that, that kind of snuck past the App Store vetting process for a while. Um, that was eventually discovered, and that's been resolved now. Uh, but then just this week, Apple pulled several hundred apps from the App Store um, because they were injecting code um, that was tracking devices through um, uh, private APIs. And so uh, that also originated in China. Um, and so I would expect that topic to come up too. So, you know, that for all the benefits of China and all the good things that Apple's seeing in China, I think there's also this potential downside that it's a market where there's a heck of a lot of um, hacking and other uh, unauthorized behavior. And the bigger Apple becomes in China, the higher the incentives are going to be for hackers to target that base of devices. So I think that will probably come up too. And it'll be very interesting to see how Tim Cook responds to that. Yeah, that is fascinating. You, you mentioned guidance for the next quarter. What I mean, what do you think their guidance will be? How do you think they're going to talk about the holiday quarter? Um, they don't usually talk much in their guidance, at least in detail. Right. Yeah, they just give those specific financial numbers and let analysts kind of draw their own conclusions from those. And I think that's the most interesting question is just going to be what what does revenue growth look like? You know, does it is it one percent year on year? Is it ten percent year on year? Is it somewhere in between that? Um, there are a lot of analysts and a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, stock uh, movement that we've seen over the last little while has been because of worries about slower growth. And, you know, Apple's been a very high growth story over the past year, and, and chances are that is going to slow down now. And so um, to that extent, you know, Apple has to provide reassurance that things are going to keep growing, even if not quite at the same pace as in the past. So, um, you know, the revenue growth number is going to be the big number that people are going to be looking at. Um, you know, the gross profit number to some extent as well, because it's an indicator of how profitable the Apple Watch is as that grows, you know, does that start to drag down margins and so on. So, yeah, looking at guidance, it's going to be really important for seeing how Apple's thinking about year-on-year -year growth and whether we're going to see the kind of slowing growth a lot of Apple analysts are expecting. You know, I already said at the beginning that their guidance for the quarter they're going to report next week was lower than the last three quarters. But I would guess that guidance for Q4 is going to be quite a bit lower than that, sort of under 10%. And so if it is, that's going to validate some of what analysts have been concerned about. But exactly how much lower than that it is will, will determine, you know, what happens to the stock. Does it is it pleasantly, surprisingly high, and therefore the stock maybe bounces back a bit? Or is it you know, right at the low end of what analysts are expecting, and therefore does it drag the stock down a bit further? And that's the big unknown here, I think. Yeah, any any last thoughts about uh, what we should expect from Apple next week on earnings? Yeah, I think, you know, as always, you know, we've only talked about some of the product lines. There's the iPad, there's the Mac, there's software and services. Um, there were some numbers on Apple Music that were released this week. It'd be interesting to see if there's any more detail about that. I'm sure they'll be asked about that. Um, but yeah, the iPad has been in pretty steady decline. It'll be interesting if there are questions about you know the impact the iPad Pro might have on turning that around. 
Um, there have been some signs that they've ordered quite a few from the supply chain, anticipating high demand. So, you know, it be interesting to see if that factors into the guidance. Mac should have grown, but probably hasn't grown quite as much year on year. Um, it's been a really tough year for the PC industry as a whole. Um, so there'll be a bit on that as well. Um, but yeah, anything on kind of services, the iTunes business, Apple's kind of been dialing back a bit in terms of how much detail it's been sharing on, on the numbers around iTunes and, and uh, the App Store and so on. So it be interesting to see any guidance there in terms of how the App Store is performing and that kind of thing too. That's always worth looking out for. But we've just had little glimpses here and there. Um, and then there's things like retail, which you know Apple stopped reporting almost all the numbers associated with retail stores. But it'll be interesting to see if there's anything there about how the new uh, iPhone order process affected you know traffic and retail stores and that kind of thing. That's probably something I'll be asked about too. So, but I think you know other than those little details, I think we've probably covered a lot of the major stuff. Well, that was great. Thanks for the rundown. Yeah, no problem. Well, let's wrap up with our third and final topic, which is the reviews which came out. We're recording on Wednesday, October 21st, and this morning was when the embargo on uh, Microsoft Surface Book reviews lifted. And so we saw a plethora of reviews from every major publication that covers this space. And I had a look through quite a few of them this morning. I think, Aaron, you've had a look at some of them as well. Um, it was interesting because we, we covered this in depth a couple of weeks ago in terms of the announcement, but of course neither of us had used the device and, uh, and nobody really talked about the experience of using it until today. And so it's been very interesting to see those reviews. I mean, some common themes coming out, some differences between reviews as well. What were your kind of main takeaways, Aaron, from looking at those reviews? I, I, it was as I expected that they were generally quite positive. I think the Surface Book is a really nice product. Uh, like I said, when we talked about it before, I, I expect to see a lot of students have bringing these into class, even though they are expensive. But I have students bringing MacBook Pros into class, so they're going to be able to afford these. Um, and uh, I think they, you know, I, I was happy to see the reviews talk about it as a genuinely novel but also useful product. Sometimes when companies come out with novel products, the novelty is... is it, is actually a detriment, if anything, right? Because right. the features are half-baked or poorly considered. And in this case, you know, the novelty seemed to be genuinely valuable. I think the detachability from the keyboard base, for example, is something that people really find themselves enjoying. I was, I was impressed that a lot of the, I mean, it's a big tablet when you pull the, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a 13-inch device, so it's a really big tablet mm -hmm. when you pull it off of the keyboard. And... I was happy to hear that when you do when you do detach it, it's light. I mean that it's mm -hmm. pretty lightweight. That comes at a cost in terms of battery life, apparently. Right. But uh, I thought that was great. You know, there seem to be great comments about the trackpad, which, for whatever reason, has been the Achilles heel of Windows laptops for mm. ages. Yeah. I have never heard of a Windows laptop having a, a trackpad that people genuinely like and enjoy. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of positive comments I saw on the trackpad, which is encouraging because hopefully it helps other PC laptop manufacturers figure that out, that the trackpad matters and you need to put in some genuine effort in engineering it. Yeah, it sounds like Windows 10 provides the drivers for the trackpad now, whereas previously it was left to third parties to provide those, and that seems to have helped even some of the... Dell and other laptops that have come out running Windows 10 seem to be doing better on the trackpad and, and kind of getting closer to Mac performance. So that's a good sign for sure. I think one of the most interesting reviews that I read of the Surface Book was the, I think it was Wired. Um, I think David Pierce, who used to be at The Verge, is now at Wired and doing their reviews. And, and he basically, his positioning around it was, this is a really, really good Windows laptop. And it happens to do this other stuff too. And I think that's probably the best way to look at it. I think, you know, that it was positioned as this really transformative device. And, um, you know, and it is a bit different. There have been some attempts to do very similar things before. So it's not completely sort of revolutionary, but I think the implementation is probably better um, and in some ways more interesting. But I think it's best seen as a really, really premium laptop that has some really unique features, i.e. the fact that you can detach this tablet uh, and that it can be used on its own for about three hours. Um, such that, you know, it's a laptop that works just as well as a laptop for the vast majority of tasks. But, you know, for the rare occasions when you need to also have a tablet, you have one. Um, you can't use it on its own all day long as you could with an iPad or something like that. But that's not the claim here. And I think that is interesting. I think there was some funny stuff about terminology. There was a, you know, I watched quite a few of the reviews and 
you know, the, the hinge, the, I think it's called the fulcrum hinge, but right. I saw other terminology applied to it. There's this, um, I think the material has its own name and so on. There's this uh, word clipboard that keeps being used, but it was used in two different ways in the reviews that I saw. And so Microsoft's either invented or, you know, repurposed a number of different terms here. And I think there's been some interesting kind of confusion even among the reviewers about what they refer to exactly. And the clipboard, right from when the, the product was announced, that felt like a really strange sort of backward-looking uh, way of describing this. I mean, who actually uses a clipboard today? And, and you know, this, I think it was uh, Ars Technica's Peter Bright, I think, when he was talking about it, he said, you can detach it and use it as a clipboard so that you can accost people on the street and ask them annoying questions, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I just thought, like, that's, that's kind of the <laughs> context in which we think of clipboards these days. It's like something you very rarely actually use. So I understand kind of where they're coming from, but it just seems an odd, backward-looking uh, name to give that, that mode. You know, it should be tablet mode, you know. But I guess they're trying to avoid the perception that it can be used as a standalone tablet for any length of time. And obviously, you know, with the GPU and the vast majority of the battery, uh, or at least the more powerful GPU and the vast majority of the battery being in the keyboard, there are some other downsides to using the tablet as a standalone device. Um, but because it can be installed on the keyboard a couple of different ways around, it's actually quite a flexible device too. So, you know, on balance, I think, you know, they did some really good stuff here. There's some really interesting innovation. Um, you know, it's a really premium product, and in the context of the Windows market, that means it's going to be uh, in a very small part of the addressable market for Windows PCs. But, you know, it's nice to see Microsoft really innovating here and trying to move the space forward. Um, there was some unfortunate stuff about the trackpad and about the way that the um, tablet part detaches that seems very glitchy in the review devices. And, you know, Microsoft's promise that the, the um, production version that's shipping to customers next week won't have those problems that they've been resolved, but it seemed a strange thing to allow to creep into these devices that almost every reviewer mentioned those things. And so that was an unfortunate sort of side effect here that sort of tarnished somewhat some of the reviews. But yeah, in general, it looked really positive. Yeah, I, I do need to take back one thing I said about it not, not really having any gimmicky features that end up not working well in practice. The fulcrum hinge, when they announced it, looked awesome. And it seemed like a really creative engineering solution um, to something that has been, I mean, everybody's kind of gravitated to the way MacBook Pros have their hinges operate on the mm -hmm. screen. The fulcrum hinge has two problems, that, one of which, well, I guess both of these hadn't occurred to me until I read about them in the reviews. And it was the Verge review that pointed this out where I first read it, that the problem with the fulcrum hinge is it doesn't send the screen flush with the keyboard base. Mm -hmm. And his complaint, uh, Tom Warren's complaint, was that it, it essentially meant that uh, dirt and hair and all kinds right. of stuff can get inside when the laptop is closed. And, and mm -hmm. you know, you close this thing, you stick it in your backpack, and your backpack is full of gunk. Like, I mean, right. it, it, there's always going to be at least dust in there. And mm -hmm. it sounds like it's annoying that the hinge creates that opportunity where every time you have to, it creates the opportunity for dust and hair to get in. So every time you open up, you're right. wiping it down. And then the other complaint I saw about the hinge that I thought was disappointing was that it's pretty wobbly when you when you have the tablet part when you have the screen attached, and the, but you're still using the touchscreen features. I understand mm -hmm. that the hinge is pretty wobbly. And yes, and yeah, it, I saw a lot of reviews mention that too. And it looked like the fulcrum hinge was a solution to the problem that other people had had with touchscreen laptops with the wobbliness of the hinge and. It turns out that's not the case. The fulcrum mm -hmm. hinge doesn't seem to improve that drawback at all, which would be really annoying if you're, you know, right. constantly using the touch features while it's still attached to the keyboard, but to have the thing bounce around. So, right. No, absolutely. I think that's true. And I think you know, and this was one of the things that I think Steve Jobs mentioned when he was asked about touchscreen laptops some time ago. He said, you know, it gives good demo, but in practical terms, it's not great. You're constantly reaching over the keyboard. And the thing won't stay straight up, you know, you keep constantly prodding at the screen, it keeps bending backwards. And, you know, in the case of the, the Surface Book, it seems it just kind of wobbles. But, um, you know, none of that's an ideal experience. And it just kind of highlights that, you know, the touch part of Windows and Windows 10 specifically is handy in some circumstances, but it, it, it doesn't work that well with most of the hardware that's actually available today. Right. All right, well, let's wrap up with our weekly pick. Um, and Aaron, it's your turn this week. So over to you. Well, so I'm going to be recommending a Bluetooth speaker, which probably sounds crazy, because there are a million Bluetooth speakers out there. This one is has is built in a unique way that I think makes it really valuable. 
like a lot of people, I don't keep an office phone anymore. I mean, I could get one at work, but I find it's just more convenient to use my cell phone for everything. When that becomes a drawback is when I have to do conference calls. And occasionally I have students in my office where we need to do a conference call to somebody else. And, um, you know, if you're using your cell phone for that, the speaker is never great. The mic is never great. And that can be a subpar experience. Well, thanks to a friend, I was I, I came across a Jabra a, a Bluetooth speaker. It's called the Jabra Speak 510. And it's essentially a Bluetooth speaker that's designed specifically to be useful as a speakerphone um, so that you can use it from your cell phone in a, in a way that uh, um, allows you to have a true speakerphone without um, having to keep an office phone around. Um, it uh, is relatively small. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, maybe maybe 50% wider than a hockey puck and about as thick. Um, it comes with a USB cable that wraps around the base. The USB cable obviously charges it, but it's not a detachable cable. Um, the other advantage of the USB cable is you can plug it into a computer, like a laptop, and have it function as a speakerphone for your laptop. So if you're using mm. Skype on a laptop, it, it creates a great speakerphone experience for that. The sound quality is really nice. Um, and in fact, I, there's a really noticeable difference. In fact, just yesterday morning, I had a board meeting and we had somebody calling in from a cell phone and it didn't sound very good. So we hooked up one of these and immediately everybody knows the difference, both on our end and also on the, on the end of the person with the cell phone. It right. comes with a handy little zipper case and it comes with buttons that are dedicated for it being a speakerphone. Um, it has a mute button, uh, it has volume buttons directly on the device like a lot of speakers do, but it also has a pick up and hang up button. Um, and as far as Bluetooth works, you know, Bluetooth implementations can be hit and miss. Um, the software on this is really well designed. It gives you vocal prompts when you're doing stuff with Bluetooth. Every time I turn it on, I've never once had, a, had trouble with it finding my phone immediately. So from the time I turn it on, it, it tells me right away that it's connected to the mobile device that it's paired with. Um, and it gets really good battery life. I find that I only, you know, I mean, I don't use it every day, but I find that I really don't ever have to charge it more than every month or two. And for me, that's also a big convenience. I find now that if I'm going to a different place where we'd be doing a conference call, I like just having it around. So again, that's the, the Jabra Speak 510. And uh, if you want a good speakerphone experience for your cell phone, uh, this would be the thing I recommend. Cool, thank you. And just as a reminder to everybody listening, this is just uh, this is a segment where we recommend something that we've personally been using. This isn't uh, advertising of any kind. This is just something that Aaron's been using and enjoying, and ditto everything else that we've recommended over the last few months. So uh, we'll include a link to that on the show page, along with links to some of the other stuff that we've talked about. Um, some of you may have listened to last week's episode when we talked about Apple Music and a report that was coming out um, from my company, Jackdaw Research, on Apple Music. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, that is available now. So we'll include a link to that on the uh, Beyond Devices uh, podcast page as well so that you can easily find that after the show. So thanks for being with us as always. We appreciate you taking the time and we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.